Let's pray together. Lord, we didn't come find you. You and your grace came and found us. And God, we don't even know the half of the grace that you have for us. And God, we don't even understand the depth of what you've done for us. But Lord, how can we unless you explain it to us? The hidden things belong to you, but the revealed things belong to us. And so God, would you this day in your grace and kindness, would you reveal to us more of a depth of an understanding of what Jesus has done for us? We want to praise his name. And Lord, how can we praise his name unless we understand better the sacrifice that he's made? We want to see him lifted high. We want all to know that through Jesus there is life. But how can that happen unless he is manifested here among us? And so God, would you to this day fulfill the promise that you have made? Jesus, would you come and be present in our midst as you promised? Would you be the host of the Lord's table that we will celebrate? Will you be present with us, teaching us by your spirit that we might understand what it is that you've done for us? And why, God, you deserve all of the praise and honor and glory. Please, Jesus, would you come and do this? For we ask this in your name, amen. Yesterday, uh, we had a memorial service for Dave Bowman. Dave Bowman was a part of this church for many years, faithfully served here. And one of the things I find so inspirational about Dave's life is that uh, at the end of Dave's life, near the end of his life, he didn't sort of fritter away the time the Lord gave him. He dedicated himself to serving God. And one of the things that he did is that the Lord brought into his life the opportunity to serve the people of South Sudan. And Dave was heavily involved in uh, helping those who were uh, struggling through the war-torn events in that part of the world. He spent time in South Sudan, built a hospital there. And uh, this week on Monday, one of his sons, uh, Deng Alir, posted this on Facebook. And Dave's son, Scott, sent this to me. This is what Deng, uh, also known as Samuel, wrote. He said, David Bowman became our foster parent when we arrived in the United States 20 years ago. The entire Bowman family embraced us and treated us like their own children or brothers. I, Joseph, James, Philip, and Casmero were the five lost boys that David cared for. Because of us, David built Memorial Christian Hospital, or Ajan Ding, in Workok, South Sudan, in 2004. The passing of David Bowman has been very difficult for me for the last three days. It's hard to believe that dad, my mentor, and a role model to me and many South Sudanese in Michigan is gone. David Bowman sacrificed everything, including his health, for the South Sudanese people. Even when he was in the hospital suffering from a stroke, he always talked about the medical needs in South Sudan. He kept making connections with nurses and doctors until the end of his life. I love you, Dad, and the South Sudanese people love you. You are in a better place now where you cannot experience pain and immobility anymore. It's a beautiful tribute. There's two things about that story, about Dave and about his life uh, and that represented there that I think is so powerful for us. The first is the idea of hospitality. That David and his family welcomed in these boys from South Sudan as simply part of the family. 
We've talked about the power of hospitality and how this is an example of what God does for us, that he welcomes us into his family. And it's a beautiful illustration. We taught through hospitality a couple of months ago from the book of Titus. But the other thing that's present, you kind of have to read between the lines, that's even more powerful, if you will, than hospitality, is the thing we want to talk about this morning. And that is the concept of incarnation. Dave didn't just invite people here, he went there. And there's something incredibly powerful about going from here, where he was comfortable, where he could have just simply enjoyed retirement, there to build a hospital, to be physically present, to be involved in their lives. And there is something incredibly powerful about the idea of incarnating yourself, of being physically present, not simply inviting people in, as wonderful as that is, but actually going there and becoming part of what's going on, being present physically, that's powerful. It's a beautiful illustration, a small illustration of what we're going to talk about this morning, that God chose to incarnate himself, meaning he didn't just invite us to come to him, his grace came and found us. We're going through a series in the book of Titus, and Titus chapter 2 verse 1 says, teach sound doctrine. And we've been going through a series and covering doctrines as they appear in the scriptures. We've laid this out in what we'd call a salvation history framework, meaning we're taking these themes and ideas as they appear in the scriptures. We started with creation, then election, redemption, Messiah. Last week we covered exile. And all of this is preparation for this week in which we get to talk about incarnation. That God became human in the person of Jesus. So I'd like to invite you, if you will, to take a Bible and turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 132. So Psalm number 132. If you don't have a Bible, the church provides them in the rack in front of you. Psalm 132 is page 502. So right about in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 32, page 502. Psalm 132. Page 502. I'll start reading in verse 1. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of, it, of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed, I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, and I'd like you to pay attention to this next word, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathra, we came upon it in the fields of Jaar, let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. 
May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. Now Psalm 132 starts off by speaking of King David. He is the author of many of the Psalms in the Bible. He's also the most famous king and most holy king in Israel's history. And David had a desire which is recounted for us in Psalm 132. He wanted to build God a house. Now if you think about it, it makes good sense. If you know anything about God, you know that God is the source of all life, all wisdom, all power, all power. How great would it be to have him as your neighbor? Wouldn't that be great? Anytime you wanted to go and praise him, anytime you needed to go and seek guidance, anytime you had a, a fight with your enemies, to have God living in your neighborhood, to have God nearby, this is what David wants. And it's really the desire of all people, you and I, who know God. We want God to live with us. We want God to go to work with us tomorrow to help us with that boss who's antagonizing us. We want God to be present with us in the lunchroom when we're trying to find someone to sit with and we gotta sit all by ourselves. We wanna have God sitting there with us. We want God present when we're in the military and we're in the foxhole, we're in danger. How great is it to have him present with you? in the midst of that circumstance or that situation. We want God with us at home when we're doing our taxes and we're looking at our financial situation and we think, how are we gonna pay for all this stuff? The cry of the heart of every person who knows God is we want God to live here. Imagine if you had a guest room in your house and Jesus said, I'm gonna come live there. How great would that be? Think of the pr protection, think of the blessing, think of the glory. Think of the power, the wisdom to just walk in and go, hey, can I ask you a question? What should I do in this situation? This is the desire of David's heart. He wants to build God a house and say, hey, look, you could live anywhere. Why not live here? Well, as you can imagine, God is pleased with this desire. But watch closely how God responds to David's desire to have God live near him in a temple. Verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his, what? Dwelling saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions, and her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. And now comes the most important verses. Here, I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Now remember what David's request was. His request was, I wanna build God a house so he'll live in our midst and we can experience the blessings of having God nearby. God's discussion is not about a house, 
It's about a person that God hears David's desire to have him nearby, but he responds not by talking about a building that God can live in, although God did live in the temple that David's son built. God responds by talking about a person. And that person, verse 17, is called the anointed one. In Hebrew, that's the word Messiah. And God's response to David's desire to have God near him is he says, I am going to give you a descendant and through that descendant, I will be present in the world in a unique way. You see, God does here what he always does. He gives us immeasurably more than all we could ask for or imagine. David's desire, our desire, is wouldn't it be great if we had a house and God lived in that house and God says, I'm gonna do you far, far better than you could have ever hoped for or imagined. I'm going to send someone and that person will be a descendant of David and the very presence of God on the earth. How is it possible for someone who is a human descendant of David to also be the very radiant presence of God dwelling among us? Well, John tells us how this can be. The Word, this is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus, became flesh and made his what? Dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. All David was asking for was like, I want a house in which God will live. God says, I am going to do far, far more than you could ever imagine. I am going to dwell among you as a human. Can you put that chart back up here that we had before? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Messiah. And we talked about Messiah, we, we said together, Jesus is the Messiah. Another way to say that is Jesus is Lord. That is the affirmation, the truth of Messiah. Jesus is Lord. This human Jesus is the Lord of the universe. We now see that in incarnation, we have the parallel doctrine. And in the parallel doctrine of incarnation, we celebrate the truth. The Lord is Jesus, meaning the God who created all things, the God who calls us into a relationship with us, who elects us, the God who redeems us and is obligated to bless us and to help us because we're part of his family, the God who is Lord over all things, the God who even sends us into exile and then speaks kindly to us, that Lord is the human person, Jesus. Messiah, Jesus is Lord. Incarnation, the Lord is Jesus. Now this is an unbelievable, stunning truth. I mean, David, you, I, no idea that God would respond this way to our desire. And the fact that the Lord 
the God of the universe is the human Jesus? Well, this has powerful ramifications for you and me today. I'd like to share with you five of those. They all come out of the book of Hebrews. So if you would, would you turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews two, page 968. It's almost unfathomable what God has done for us. So let's try the best we can. We're just humans, but we've asked God's spirit to help us. The best we can to understand the magnitude of what God has done for us by becoming human to live among us. The first ramification for you and I, starting in verse five. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them, that's us, a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but... We do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The first thing that Jesus' humanity does for us as humans is it exalts humanity. Now this is complex stuff, but stick with me. At creation, the order went this way. God, angels, humans. What Hebrews is saying, God made humans a little lower than the angels. So on the ladder, God, angels, humans. But notice what Hebrews is saying. When God became a human, It elevated and exalted humanity so that now and into eternity, the order is God, humans, angels. Do you understand that? This is what he's saying. God has chosen to subject everything to humanity, even the angelic realms. This is why Paul will say, don't you know you're going to judge angels? God has chosen to subject all things to humans. Why? Because Jesus became a human. And when God exalted Jesus, the whole human race was exalted. And you're like, well, we don't see it now. That's what Hebrews is saying. We don't see everything subjected to humanity. But we do see one human, and everything is subject to him. When Jesus became a human, it exalted humanity. I'm sure many of you watched the Super Bowl last week. You may have even paid attention to the commercials. There was one that uh, was aired, I think it was actually a little before the Super Bowl, but it was the Olay, Oil of Olay commercial, and it was supposed to be kind of a, uh, exalting women. 
and was supposed to be an encouragement, I think my daughters found it to be encouraging, uh, of seeing women in science, technology, engineering, and math. And so kind of the STEM uh, subjects and to say, hey, look, you can do this. And one of the ways they did that is in the commercial, they had a real live female astronaut, Nicole Stott, and she was featured in the commercial. And the point was supposed to be, hey, look, especially to women, look, she did it. Look where she is. That's supposed to exalt womanhood. Imagine the truth that you and I get to look on the throne of the universe. And who's seated there? A human. It exalts humanity. There is a human being, just like you and I, glorified state, seated on the throne of the universe. That's powerful. The second thing that Jesus' humanity does for us as humans, it secures us. Verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers and sisters. He says, I declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. When Jesus became human, he is now united to humanity. And that secures our future. A couple of years ago, uh, somebody called me up about things that we're doing at the church to try to care for, and specifically what was mentioned was Syrian refugees, people who were uh, fleeing the war-torn country of Syria and were coming to uh, West Michigan and other places. And our church jumped in and got involved and welcomed them with open arms. And Someone contacted me to say, uh, and this was kind of at the height of the kind of the fear of, wait a minute, all these people are coming and they're going to come here and harm us or kill us or blow us up or those sorts of things. And the person was like, hey, look, we, is, we need to not have anything to do with this. Those Syrians that are coming here are coming here to harm us. And so we talked it through and it worked out just fine. But my response, first point was, hey, you know, the Bible tells us to do this. Like this is, we're going to be hospitable. Like we don't have a choice here. We want to do this. I did say that part. The second part I didn't say, but I thought to myself, and I thought, you do know I'm Syrian, right? <laughs> like, at no point is this church going to have a policy that bans Syrians. It's not going to work. <laughs> at no point is God ever going to be done with humans because Jesus is a human. Do you understand what this means? No matter what we do, no matter how long eternity lasts, God will never, ever, ever be done with humans because his son is human. Jesus is our brother. That secures humanity. There is no future scenario in which God just says, let's be done with all these humans. Let's start over. Let's go to another world. Let's create a different universe. Jesus is human. And God will never, ever 
reject humanity because his son is one of us. The third thing that Jesus' humanity does for us is that it saves us. Verses 14 and following. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Earlier in the passage, you heard Jesus called the pioneer of our salvation. What pioneers do is they blaze trails. They open up paths. They make it possible for other people to follow in their footsteps. This is why we can celebrate a female being a Supreme Court justice or a one-armed pitcher making it in the Major League Baseball or a black man being president. These open pathways so that anybody who follows after them can attain the thing that they attained. Jesus did this for us in our salvation, meaning he became human, suffered and died to open the door through death to resurrection. Do you know that humans can be resurrected? How do I know that? Because Jesus is a human and he's been resurrected. Humans are going to have glorified, resurrected bodies. How do I know that? Because the pioneer of our salvation has already been through the door. He's blown open the path. And now we can follow. And he's made a way for us to be saved. He's made a way for us to pass safely through death into resurrection. And the reason why we grieve uh, the loss of Dave Bowman but we don't grieve without hope. You see, simply following the footsteps of the pioneer of our salvation who's already shown the way. And because God became human, humans can now follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be saved. The fourth thing that Jesus' humanity does for us, verses 17 and 18, for this reason he had to be made human He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus' humanity causes God to empathize with us. Jesus knows what it's like to be a little kid. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired. Jesus knows what it's like to try to love somebody that's hard to love. You realize that? Jesus knows it's hard to keep believing. He understands that sin is a temptation. He's empathetic to the fact that when Satan comes after you, it is super difficult. He knows that. He knows what it's like to wrestle with and struggle with the death in this life. He's watched loved ones die. 
He knows what it's like to be grieved to the heart. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows and understands how fear works, how doubt works, how anxiety works. Do you know that there was a time in which Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wished he was dead rather than what he was going through? He knows those desires and those longings for death. He understands those temptations because he's human. And God chose to become human so he might empathize with us. This is why later in Hebrews, it says of Jesus, do you know what Jesus is doing right now for you and for me? He's praying. He's not angry. He's praying because it's hard. He knows that life is hard and he's praying for you. This is why it says that he's gentle with us. This is why it says that he himself suffered so that when he comes to interact with us, he does so in gentleness. And in kindness. The fifth and final reason, or benefit, sorry, to Jesus being human. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Jesus' humanity gives us an example of how to be human. He didn't just give us a set of rules to try to obey. God himself became one of us to show us how to live, to demonstrate to us how obedience to God works. That Jesus himself, who did not hold on to his divinity as something to be grabbed onto, but made himself human, shows us the value of obedience. That Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That at his trial, he did not fight back. He did not try to prove himself in the right. He simply says, I'm going to leave it in the Father's hands. Jesus showed us how to live, how to love, how to be faithful. And he showed us the blessings that come from following God's will. Jesus' humanity is something we can grasp. Sometimes it's hard to grasp, well, how does the Father operate? And what does it mean that God is compassionate and gracious and merciful? And it can be hard to grasp how the Spirit functions. But Jesus, he's human. We watch what he did and we do what he did. And God set for us an example that we can fix our eyes on. Jesus' humanity exalts humanity, secures humanity, saves humanity, allows God to empathize with humanity, and provides an example for humanity. Now we have the chance to be able to commemorate that and to celebrate that in communion. Now as we do this all week, and even last night as I was preparing and going over this, I was like, Man, Lord, these feel like words on a page. I don't know how to get this across to you because I have trouble getting it across to me. The magnitude of what Jesus did for us in becoming a human is almost unfathomable. The incarnation is without a doubt the greatest miracle in the history of miracles. It is a far greater miracle than the resurrection and it is a far greater miracle than creation itself. Please try with me. God 
became a human. I don't know, how, I don't even know how to wrap my mind around it. God is human in the person of Jesus. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. But do you know that Jesus is human for the rest of eternity? He did not simply become a human for 30 years. He chose out of kindness and love because we needed somebody to do this for us. This is why it says in the book of Revelation, we gotta have a human open the scroll and everybody is weeping because nobody is worthy to do it. The only way we get this stuff is for Jesus to become human, but there's no way you can do this part way. And so Jesus, out of love for you and me, chose to become human forever. There's no going back. There is no unhumanizing him. There is no way to reverse this process. He was born a human and he will be a human for all of eternity. This is stunning to me. For all of eternity up to the incarnation, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son chose from that moment on for the rest of eternity to be human. It's a stunning sacrifice. It's hard to grasp how much God loves us that he would do this. That he would do this never going back for you and for me. And so in just a minute, uh, bread and a cup are going to be distributed. If you're a believer in Jesus, we invite you to participate. If you're not yet, what else are you waiting for? God is chasing after you. What more do you want him to do? He's become human to be with you. And if you're willing to believe that, you are a Christian. And we invite you to take the bread and the cup. If you're not ready, just let them pass you by. While you hold on to that bread and cup, please hold on to them because I'm going to get back up and we'll, we'll all take them together. There's a couple things you can do when you take communion. And one of them, which is always good, is that it's an opportunity to kind of confess to the Lord ways that you've fallen short. If you need to do that, please do that. But the, 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 the impulse in my heart is that during this time of communion, I feel like we should be going for gratitude and celebration. We didn't do any of this stuff. <laughs> Jesus did it all for us. And so when we hold that bread that reminds us of his body and we hold that cup that reminds us of his very human blood, I'd love to just celebrate. I'd love if just in your heart you want to just say thank you. If you want to understand that God has pledged himself to humanity for the rest of eternity and you just want to stop this morning and say thank you, he will be super pleased with that. Because the crazy thing is, David the very best thing he could hope for was a house in which God lived. And God did come and live in that house for a couple of centuries until the sins were so much that he couldn't be there anymore. But what we got, what David got with us, is something so far beyond what anybody could ever hope for or imagine. God dwelling with us as a human connected to us for eternity. Dave Ellis, one of our elders, is going to lead us in prayer. 
for communion. Dave, uh, come and take us to God's throne. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.